verses in all of Scripture. When I was a young lad, between the ages of 7 and 10, we lived in places like Acton and Cambridge. But my grandparents, as I've shared with you before, lived in the near north, east, and uh, just north of Perry Sound, a little town called Maple Island. Whenever we went to visit, we would get in the car, and it would be a long trip. <laughs> Today, with Highway 11 being four lanes, it doesn't take as much time. You can get from Acton up there in about three and a half hours. It's 100 kilometers an hour, at least in some places. And in the last year or so, there are places that are now 120 kilometers an hour. But back in the late 60s and early 70s, it wasn't a four-lane highway. <laughs> Maximum speed was about 80. And then you were going through all of these little towns like Burke's Falls and Gravenhurst where you'd all of a sudden go screeching down to 60, 50, or 40 kilometers an hour depending on where you were. That three and a half hour ride could easily stretch into five. And that wasn't including heavy cottage traffic which could easily make it six or more. For my younger brother myself, it was a really long trip. And in, try to stop us from even getting into that habit of saying, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? My, my father instilled in us, he said, we're going to be on this road a while. And when you start to see the road go right through the rock, so there's this big rock and there's a rock cut and the road goes through that. When you see those road cuts, it means that we're almost at grandma and grandpa's house. And you know what? That really helped. It gave us a bit of a reference point. <coughs> we could be in the car for a couple hours entertaining ourselves, but as young boys, you know what happens. We just get to the point of annoying each other to no end. But you know what? As soon as we saw that Canadian shield, those beautiful rocks and the road going right through them, we knew that we were almost at our destination. Something similar is happening here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel has been taken into captivity as a young lad, probably only around 10 years old. He's been there for well over 60 years. He, he's there and he's been doing this whole time what the prophet of Jeremiah had told the exiles they needed to do, and that is to seek the welfare of the city that God has sent them to. Throughout his whole time in Babylon, he has been a man who has been faithfully worshiping and walking with God, even when it was a threat to his life. He never compromised his walk. But at the same time, here he was, probably the most important personal advisors to some of the, 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 the most notorious, powerful kings of the ancient empire. And he held that in balance, a godly walk and serving an ungodly king. And now at the opening of chapter 9, we see Daniel, he's reading the word of God. Literally, he's got the scrolls of Jeremiah out and he realizes that the captivity is almost over. God had promised in Jeremiah 25 and in 29 
that this desolation of Israel would last only 70 years. And you could imagine as, as he's reading these things, he's calculating, 70 years? Well, I've been here now 66. <laughs> There's a countdown going on in his mind. What's God going to do? He knows that the time is almost up. He's here in Babylon, and it prompts him to pray. Pray one of the most powerful prayers bar none in the Bible. And even more astounding, starting in verse 20, God actually responds to him in a mighty way with another powerful vision. Now, over this week and the next, we're going to look at Daniel in chapter 9 in two different parts. First of all, this morning, we're going to look at the prayer itself because there's really so much for us to unpack here. If we just use it as a precursor to get to the promise, then we're going to miss a whole blessing this morning. So this morning, we're going to look at the prayer, and next week, we're going to try to unpack a little bit what is the answer that God brings. Now, before we even get anywhere, we need to remember that the whole of chapter 9 is actually one literary unit. It's one story interwoven, the prayer and the answer of God. And the purpose of all of this is simply this, to give Israel hope that in their exile, it's almost over. God has decreed that 70 weeks are still to go before he will restore Jerusalem and bring in his everlasting kingdom. This morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 19, which is the prayer itself, and I'm going to include 20 to 23 as, as really a hinge for this week and for next week, because it, it has something really important about prayer that we need to consider this morning. So before we go any farther, what we're going to do this morning is look at this prayer in two different aspects. One is, what are the components of that prayer? And the second is, how does it really connect to us today? That, that's where we're going this morning. What are the components of the prayer, and what does it mean for us? Now, just to have things in the right order, because we know that not all of the chapters of Daniel actually line up chronologically or historically, we need to remember a few things. First of all, this is the, uh, the third dream. The, the first dream is of that great statue made of, of different precious metals, that is actually smashed by a stone that is not made from human hands. And it spoke of the rise and the fall of four human kingdoms before the Messiah would come. The second vision was of the four beasts, and each of the beasts corresponds to one of the four kingdoms in the first vision. But here we have the added information that there is going to be a time of great tribulation at the hands of Satan. And at the end of that tribulation, then you have the Son of Man who will come and will judge all peoples. A final day of judgment. In chapter 9 itself, just thinking about some of the, the things that have happened in Daniel's life, chapter 9 happens basically at the same time as chapter 6, within a couple months of each other. Chapter 6 is what? When Daniel refuses to stop praying and he's thrown into the lion's den. So this happens around the same time as, as, as uh, chapter 9 here. But remember, too, it happens within months of chapter 5. Before Daniel's thrown into the lion's den under King Darius, 
we see in chapter 5 the handwriting on the wall and the fall of the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar. So here's Daniel. He's been given two of these mysterious visions of God's plan. There are going to be four kingdoms that must rise and fall before the Messiah comes. Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, has just died suddenly. And Darius, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, has just taken control. He's the new kid on the block. He's just taken control of everything. And here he is. He's had these, uh, these visions, and he sees world events changing around him, and he's pondering God's promises, and he's reading God's Word, hoping that it would shed some light on, on, on all of these things that are going on, and he comes across Jeremiah 25, and it says, Then after several years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if I've been in captivity for 60-odd years, and, and God has said that this great and wonderful uh, 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 plan of His is unrolling, is, is being developed in, in, before His very eyes, and now He reads that the time of the captivity is so close to ending... Uh, my reaction would be, yes, <laughs> get those Babylons. It says right here that you're going to actually, you're going to judge them. Let's pack our bags. Let's get going. We're out of here. It'd be time of rejoicing, wouldn't it? But that's not Daniel's response. He prays. And, and you know what? This has been a, a reality of his whole life. In chapter 2, way back in chapters 2, we see a young Daniel. And the first vision comes and the, uh, the king's guard, Arius, comes. And he's been commanded to king, kill all of the wise men because none of them are able, able to interpret the vision. Daniel pleads and says, let me go to my God and, and I'll seek an answer. I'll, I'll seek an interpretation. And we're told very specifically that he goes to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, let us together seek the compassion of the Lord God in prayer. And, and chapter 6, that we just talked about in the lion's den, he's, he's now an older man. He's, he's in his early 70s, which is pretty old for ancient times. And he goes to the lion's den because he refuses to not pray. So from the first picture we see in, of Daniel coming into Babylon until this very time, 60 years plus, he is presented to us consistently as a righteous man who seeks God in prayer. So as, as we come to verses 1 through 19, we could say, okay, here are the aspects of prayer. It would be probably pretty easy for me to just say, you know, there's a pattern here. You've probably all known it. You've probably all used it. It's the word acts, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And you could say, yeah, each of those is part of what's going on in that great prayer. But what we're going to see is that this is more than a simple an acronym to say, how can you pray better? 
If we were to start taking careful note of, of the things that we read here in verses 4 through 19 in particular, and I don't know if you have a physical Bible with all your cross-references, look at the number of cross-references that are there in those. It, you'll see that it's literally chock full of quotations from Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the Psalms, the book of the Kings, the book of the Chronicles. <laughs> This is a man whose prayer is saturated in the Word of God. His prayer wasn't simply prompted by the Word of God. It was that, but it is also soaked in the Word of God. Everything he speaks is the Word of God back to God. And the importance of that is that as he reads the promise here in Jeremiah, the exile is only going to be 70 years, he's immediately compelled to plead for God's mercy. It's a deep, it's an earnest, heartfelt contrition. And why? God has promised that he's going to judge the Babylonians and bring them out. Why a prayer of contrition and confession? That sounds strange to us, but here's the thing. He's contemplating this wonderful promise that the exile is about to end. But he looks at his own heart, and he looks at the heart of God's people, and he says, Lord, you have justly sent us here because our sins were so outrageous, our sins were so grievous against you. Here we are still in Babylon. The time is almost up. And we still haven't learned our lesson. So Daniel's not rejoicing that it's the time to come back and go back to Jerusalem because he's gripped by the reality of the unrepentant heart of God's people. And that's what moves him to pray. But you notice it's not simply just any prayer as we might pray. He, he lays hold of God. He cries out in his distress and bears it all before the Lord. And it's not simply for the, the sins of Israel. He includes himself in that. And verse 20 says, this Gabriel comes when? When I am speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel. In his prayer, he says... <laughs> we've sinned, we've done wrongly, we have done wickedly, we have rebelled, we have rejected the commandments and the righteous ways of God. Lord, you were so justified, so righteous and holy. You, you, it was your right to send us into exile. All of Israel, from the greatest to the smallest, from the least to the largest, has committed cosmic treason against you. You warned us in the book of Moses, in the law of Moses, that this was going to happen, and we didn't listen. <laughs> you promised that if we were going to be disobedient, you'd pour out your wrath upon us, make us a desolation, and tear us away from the promised land. <laughs> and yet, we continue to follow after false gods. You have acted justly, we have deserved this. In every way, 
Daniel's confession was God-centered. He, he wasn't blaming the Babylonians for their evils. He wasn't blaming God. Well, you were too harsh on us. You know, you didn't really understand uh, what we were doing or not doing. And he certainly didn't shy away from accepting guilt, right? He puts it all squarely on his shoulders and on the shoulders of Israel. In the light uh, of God's holy perfections, Daniel's earnest prayer was brutally honest. They didn't deserve anything from God. And here's the question. In that kind of a situation, when we have no defense before God, what do we say? What do we do? We plead for mercy. And that's exactly what Daniel does. Verse 15, have mercy on us, just like when you brought us up out of Israel. Verse 16, according to your righteous acts, turn away your wrath. Verse 18, we present our pleas to you, not on behalf of, of anything that we have done, but because of your righteousness and your great mercy. Daniel wasn't asking God for anything that they deserved. They had everything they deserved. He was asking God to give them what they didn't deserve, and that was his mercy. Just as you have shown us mercy and grace, and also undeserving, you have brought us out of Egypt, so now incline your ear to us. Hear our prayers. Listen to our pleas, and oh Lord, please act. Now, th these verses, 4 through 19, the heart of the prayer itself, Daniel's understanding of the character in the nature of God simply wasn't head knowledge, was it? It, it, was, it comes from a deep sense of, of his unworthiness before a holy God, of his, of his sin, of his people's sin, and of God's righteousness. And it leads him to exalt, in, in this one prayer at the same time, it leads him to exalt the righteousness of God and that he is holy and just to have judged them the way he has. And yet at the same time, say, Lord, have mercy because you are a God of mercy. On the basis of God's covenantal faithfulness and mercy, he pleads that God would bring them up out of Egypt just as he has done once before even though they did not deserve it. So what can we say about Daniel's prayer? Well, Daniel's prayer is motivated by God's word. It's saturated with God's word. It's infused with prayer and worship. It's thoroughly God-centered in all things. It's brutally honest before the Lord. It is filled with heartfelt confession and repentance. But there's one more thing that it has, and we see that in verses 22, or sorry, 20 to 23. Daniel's prayer is actually the plan, part of the plan of God. When, God sorry, when Daniel prays, God amazingly responds. 
He doesn't respond as Daniel is expecting, and we'll get to that in a second. But when Daniel prays, God is prompted into action. Daniel says in verse 23, when, when, when the angel Gabriel came and started to talk to me, it says what? At the beginning of your pleas for, for mercy, and a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The very moment that, that Daniel was moved uncontrollably to pray and to seek the mercy of God, God acted by sending his messenger to David, not only to give a vision, but to give an explanation of the vision. What is he going to do next? Now, I don't know if you find that thought-provoking, <laughs> but you probably should, <laughs> because it, it's texts like these, it, it's, there's verses like these, that really drive us to ask the question, if God is truly sovereign, how can he be prompted to do anything by my prayer? If God truly knows all things, if he has already preordained that all things should fall out and pass according to his inscrutable will, why do we need to pray? And I tell you the truth, I think that question would have been pretty strange to Daniel. He would have said something like, I pray because God is sovereign. I, I pray because He is the only one that can actually change the situation, that can bring about a righteousness and, 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 and a worthiness in the kingdom of God. It's because God is sovereign that I can pray, and it's because God is sovereign that I can pray with great expectation. And so here's the answer to the question, that seemingly impossible question, why pray if God is sovereign? It's because God has appointed prayer as a means of accomplishing His will in so many things. And we see that very specifically in the context that we're talking about. We looked at Jeremiah 25 and the promise that it would only be 70 years. Let's look at Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here we go. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord God, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all of the, of the nations and all of the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In the outworking of God's sovereign purposes, God often uses the prayers of his people as the trigger to activate the next thing that God has planned. So for Daniel, praying back to, to God, the things that God has already promised in His Word, the things that He has, has covenanted Himself to His people, this is going to happen by my name's sake. I'm going to do this. This was the most natural thing for, for him to do. This was the most common sense thing to do. In fact, it becomes the very necessary precondition for what God is going to do next. God says here, I'm going to bring you out 
at that time, you will pray for me, you will seek me, and I will be found. So this was the most natural thing for Daniel to do. I pray because God is sovereign. And, and I, I pray because I believe that there are prayers of God's people that are so important, they're woven into the very plan of redemption of God himself. This is why we call prayer a means of grace. God has committed some things in his outworking of his will to actually come about in direct relationship to the prayers of his people. In, in a simple way, prayers are part of the plan of God. Now, we actually see this in the book of Revelation chapter 8 as well. I don't know if you thought about this. You have, remember that vision of the, that golden censer that holds all of the prayers of God's people? It's only when the censer is actually filled to the fullness of prayer that it's thrown to the ground, and that starts the chain reaction of the next stage of God's plan. So here's the thing. So while we can say that prayer is a means for us to come and find comfort, to express our anxieties and fears, to release our burdens, prayer is actually also a vital part of the outworking of God's plan of redemption. It's not something that we can say, we don't have to do it. God has already ordained that it is part of the plan. Now, starting in verse 20, God responds to Daniel's prayer for mercy in a very specific and yet controversial way. And he says, you know what? Israel will be restored in 70 weeks. Lord willing, next week we'll try to tackle that a little bit. Again, it's one of the most controversial scriptures that there is in the Bible. In fact, by the 6th century AD, the, the early church fathers already recognized that there were 50 or 60 different ways to interpret that, let alone the addition of all the different theologies that there are today. But for now, I, I just want us to focus on one thing. I, I want us to see because we could start looking at, at all of these things and, and, and actually miss the forest for the trees. So let's consider one simple thing. God says in response to Daniel's prayer, one, you are greatly loved. And two, it's only a little bit longer. Just be patient. Verse 24. Things are going to happen that will make you think, I did not hear you, that I am not caring. But I have heard. I am already now doing something about it. I'm going to now bring out uh, the next step in my plan. I'm going to bring my people out of Babylon, return them to the promised land. But here's the thing, the desolation of Israel is not yet over And I don't know if you caught the reference here. We probably just read things quite quickly and glaze over them. But when does all of this happen? In it says in verse 21, the angel come is at the time of the evening sacrifice for sin. That's important for two reasons. One is just a kind of a, 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 a fish hook for next week. When was Christ crucified? 
three o'clock in the afternoon at the time of the second sacrifice. But here, according to, the, just in, in the simple context we're looking at, the importance is that there hasn't been a sacrifice morning or evening for over 60 years. Daniel has been in Babylon since he was a little boy. He, he's never really been part of, of any of this offering system, and yet he is so committed to the will of God, the purposes of God, the law of Moses, that he marks his day according to to the morning and the evening sacrifices. And, and we know by chapter 2, in chapter 2, when he is praying, he is praying according to that time. God says, I'm going to do something. But there is a greater desolation than simply the physical city of, of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to do something much bigger, much grander than simply bringing my people out of exile in Babylon. I'm going to send my Messiah. He is going to come into the world. And, and as he's in the world, or while he's in the world, he's going to be cut off. He's going to be brought to nothing in order to end sin. And through his ending of sin there will never need to be another morning or evening sacrifice again. Daniel, you prayed that, that I would forgive the sin of my people, just as I had promised. Know this, I'm going to send my son Jesus Christ, and through him there will finally be true forgiveness of sin. I'm going to answer your prayer, but more, I'm going to answer it by ending sin and the power of sin forever, once and for all. Now, when we were in the car, my brother and I, doing those long road trips, looking and, and trying to find that road cut that Highway 11 went through, because that, that told us something, right? It told us that we were almost there. But there's one important word there almost. <laughs> it was still probably 45 minutes to an hour before we got to my grandparents' place. Well, when Daniel reads the promises of God that the exile is only going to last 70 years, he starts praying for God's mercy because he's, he's expecting that God is about to act in a very unique and powerful way. But God says, we're not quite there yet. Be comforted, but it's a little longer. So, how are we supposed to apply this to ourselves? How does it connect? Well, it, it would be very easy, a very straight-line path to say, okay, let's look at some of these components and, and extrapolate uh, uh, about how that affects us. And we could say, yes, we need to be men and women. If we're going to pray effectively, we need to be saturated with God's Word. We should be saying that we pray back God's word to him because we believe he is sovereign. But there's more than that. We pray to him because we know that we can stand on the promises of God in the New Testament. Things that say, for example, 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. If you believe that, we pray back, Lord, I am stressed, I am anxious, I, I've, I have no end to financial problems, but you have promised your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for me. 
Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, I believe that I have true rest in you. Thank you for that. And 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Lord, I believe I have been healed. I believe that the power of sin no longer has sway in me. These are things that we need to be praying back to God. They are promises of God to God's people here and now. But I also want to say we can tighten up our application a little bit here because we need to appreciate that there is a similar situation. What we might say is a, a corresponding analogy of what's happening in Daniel chapter 9 and us today. Here's Daniel. He's in exile. And he has the promise that God is about to do something great. And God says, wait a little bit. I'm going to do something greater yet. But he starts praying, and he prays the language of the covenant. He prays the language of, of God taking Israel out of Egypt. And he prays back the word of God. He appeals to God's mercy, not for what they deserve, but what they do not deserve. But likewise, you know, we are exiles. <laughs> we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. We now, by the grace of God, have a right relationship with God, but we are again, as I've said before, in that time of now but not yet, we still await the coming of Jesus Christ for the fulfillment, uh, the fullness of all the promises of God. Daniel was waiting for God to restore Jerusalem. We're waiting for the restoration of the new Jerusalem. What are our prayers? What is the efficaciousness? What do we believe is the usefulness of these prayers? No man knows the hour of Christ's return. But Luke 21, verse 25 through 28 says this, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and the foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when you see these begin, things begin to, to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is near. Knowing that Christ is returning. And knowing when he returns, there is going to be a judgment. Are we compelled to pray for more than, than the simple but real reality and the needs that we have? Are, are, are we compelled to pray for the big things of God that are about to happen? Are, are we compelled to pray for mercy in a remembrance that we are undeserving of grace and mercy, but knowing the reality of our heart. We don't walk as we should. So many times we are swayed by sin. We do that which gratifies the flesh instead of glorifies God. Are, are we looking and seeking God in mercy for those around us who do not yet know Him, and as we said before, who are even now on a, a, a collision 
with the judgment of God and, and a separation, a judgment that will last for all eternity. It does an understanding of knowing that Christ is coming soon, does that compel us to pray for our unsaved family members, our neighbors, our co-workers? I think we, we can talk about the, the different elements of the prayer of Daniel and, and miss this bigger picture that we are in a unique time of waiting for that final step to happen. Do we pray for the church? Not just us physically as a church, but the church in North America. I would say <laughs> we're far more bound by culture and expectations of the world than we are more aligned with the things of the world than the things of God way too often. Jesus is coming again. And the only reason he hasn't come yet, Rome, or sorry, Revelation chapter 8, the censor that holds the prayer of God's people has not yet been filled. We don't know when that will happen. You could be a, a, a prayer warrior here. You could be someone who stumbles in your prayer. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. Your prayer is important because there is a fullness of time when the prayers of God's people come to that climax and God says, that's it. This is the time. Christ is coming again. I don't know about you, but I know that that's not my heart all the time. And, and I'm the only one saved in my family. I was interacting with my neighbor the other day about a fence that's going up, and I was more frustrated about the water runoff than I was by the fact that he's unsaved and needs to know Jesus. Lord, forgive us and act.